Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 85, with Samir Golay. Welcome to episode 85 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at TAdamMartin on Twitter. A bit of housekeeping first. If you are curious about any skips and sequence numbers in your podcast app, those missing episodes are actually halftime shows, which are available to the community only at this time. I'll explain more about the community at the end of this episode, but if you're interested in learning more, you can check out makersofsport.com slash community or listen to episode 65, where I explain the launch of the community and the benefits. On this episode, I'm very happy to welcome the vice president of digital products at Major League Soccer to the podcast. Samir Golay is here with us to discuss his role with the MLS and how they're pushing the limits with what you can do with digital at the MLS as they work to grow the beautiful game in the U.S. Samir has been working on the web in some fashion since around 2006, and prior to the MLS, he spent time at DirecTV and Viacom, leading the strategic direction of some of their digital products and video platforms. Welcome to the show, Samir. I know it's the middle of soccer season. I really appreciate you taking the time to come aboard. Yeah, thank you. It's great to hear. Great to be here. Happy to, to chat about my role. Awesome. So we, we kind of talked about it a little before we started recording, but the last 24 hours have been pretty, uh, pretty insane with Landon Donovan coming back. Is that, are people pretty excited around the office about that? Yeah, it's been an exciting time, exciting 24 hours. It's always fun when you get such a big name uh, coming into the league and someone who's already recognizable within MLS has uh, already built that relationship with our fan base, getting him to come back and play with a powerhouse like LA and really try to give them a boost as we approach our playoffs. It's going to be fun for our fans, fun for the league, I think fun for everyone involved. Absolutely. I've been watching watching the news closely. It's uh, It was kind of serendipitous for that to, that news to break right before we jumped on this thing so we could chat about it. But um, I did, uh, so, so I gave a bit of a brief introduction to you and your career, but at this time of the podcast, I really like to give guests an opportunity to just provide more insight into their own story. Uh, so do you mind just giving us a, an overview leading up to where you are with the MLS today? Sure. Yeah. So my uh, background, I guess, before I start into my professional career, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, and that's really where my, my sports roots uh, started to grow. Grew up being a Buffalo Bills fan, Buffalo Sabres fan, was there witnessing four losing Super Bowls, the <laughs> no goal for the Buffalo Sabres in 99. But Really, that kind of instilled in me my, my passion for sports. And to this day, I've been living in New York for, for 15 years now, and I still f- follow Buffalo sports first and foremost. They are my leading team for, for everything. So that's where it all started. But I uh, went to NYU for, for school, and coming out of school, I actually ended up doing um, a gig over at a fashion production company um, doing just more traditional marketing, not digital really focused back then but basic marketing. And during that time, it was a smaller company. They were um, trying to create a digital presence. And the, uh, the, the CEO or the president of the company was just kind of looking for a way to build a website. And me being new to the company and eager to please, I volunteered, raised my hand and said, hey, why don't I try to do this? And I had no digital experience prior to this. I'd never done any development or coding or anything. But uh, it seemed interesting to me. It seemed like a good challenge. So it was really my first foray into that field. And looking back on it, I, uh, I, I experimented with Flash back then, learned some basic like HTML skills, put together a website, which at the time I thought was amazing. Looking back on it now, it was a <laughs> disaster. Yeah. But it really kind of just started my thirst for this, this discipline and this field of trying to understand digital and where it's going and wanting, me to, wanting to be part of that. So from there, I, I uh, transitioned into DirecTV, which um, I, I was there for a number of years, almost seven or eight years, and filled many roles during that time. I started off in uh, more of a digital marketing role uh, where I was working to kind of put together and figure out their plans for bringing various marketing campaigns or informational campaigns to life through the website. 
But over the years, that evolved and, and shifted a little bit from that to then dipping my toes into product uh, development as it was becoming more of a mature practice within DirecTV. Um, and then becoming more focused entirely on product management itself. And um, it was a fun experience. I got to, to work on a bunch of different things. I was working on different aspects of their business, everything from customer acquisition, so e-commerce and figuring out how to let customers buy DirecTV online, which is a very complicated product and trying to streamline that as much as possible to their self-care section of the site where we were fan, or where customers could go and pay their bills or troubleshoot any technical problems they were having. And then ultimately, um, towards the, the end of my tenure there, they were starting to build out their um, TVE product and really figuring out a way to take all their entertainment content and making it, making it available in a digital platform. So um, was there to, to put forth their TVE product and their apps and uh, connected TV devices all around that. Um, I think for me, DirecTV was, was really, really influential because it actually introduced me to design in a way that I'd never really participated in it before. Um, before kind of my, my DirecTV tenure, I always just thought of design as kind of the output, the final noun, like the, the, right. the comp. Like or icing, the, icing on the cake. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I, I was lucky enough to have, to have a great manager when I was at DirecTV who was um, completely design-driven and introduced me to design thinking and really taught me how design's not a noun, but really a verb. It's a process. And everything involved with the discovery and research and actually coming to that final output is the much more uh, interesting part to me. So it was interesting from that standpoint. I got to, like I said before, work on a number of different projects, but after seven years, I, I wanted to try a new challenge, go in a little bit of a different direction. So I um, shifted gears and moved on to, to Viacom. And uh, the thinking there was I actually um, wanted to try to get a little bit of a different experience. And my time at Viacom was much more focused more on the development side of product management and aligning with engineering and development and really figuring out a process around that side. Um, and it was interesting because Viacom um, covers many, many brands, Nickelodeon, MTV, et cetera. Right. And what I was focused on was building out their, their core video platform. Um, not specific to any brand, but it was a, a solution that any brand could then pick up off the shelf and integrate into their website or integra integrate into their apps and create their own experiences around that. So I really learned much more about just the technical aspects of taking a product, taking an idea, taking um, a use case and bringing it to scale because... Uh, at the end of the day, when you're covering all of their domestic brands, international brands, the video product was serving over billions of video views uh, a year to all of their fans around the globe. So um, really kind of tested me on my technical chops and let me understand much more about just development processes in a, in a very different way than what I was doing at, at DirecTV, which was a little bit more traditional, very waterfall mindset. And becoming uh, coming over to Viacom, let me become... Um, ingrained in a lot more kind of agile culture and, and approach to product development. Um, and then now I'm at MLS, been here for uh, almost a year and a half now, and it's been a great, great experience so far. I head up the digital product team here. Um, it's a group of product managers, engineers, um, hoping to build out some in-house design skills in, in, in the future as well. It's a very small team, um, but we have a ton of ambition. And um, we're, we're focused on all fan-facing experiences, whether it's our app, our website, connected TV devices, along with all the underlying services and infrastructure that make the, the front-end magic happen. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. That's awesome. That's awesome, man. I want to go back real quick to uh, when you were at DirecTV. I think, I'm not going to guess how old you are, but I would imagine that uh, I'm 33, so I, I would imagine just looking at your where you were on your on your LinkedIn profile. I'm um, 33 as well. Oh, there you go. All right, perfect. Um, well, I, you and I both, then, we've really seen uh, that those years that you were at DirecTV, uh, we've really seen UI and UX just change, really become a thing, honestly. I mean, because I remember when Facebook came out, nobody really... I guess maybe it's really deep into technology companies, people were thinking about UX, but now you know you didn't really have what what seemed like was just a UI designer or something like that. So just seeing like how that has has changed and, and exploded over time, like where 
from your because you got a marketing degree, right? Is that correct? correct. From yep. yeah. So so how how has that just the marketing side played into um, your what? How where have you been able to sort of take that and and push it into the design side? Because once you pick that up, like like you said, there's like the icing on the cake mentality, and I think there's still a lot of that in sport. But when you have design as a you know digital design product design specifically is is a essentially a business role. I mean, designers today, that's the future. Design is a business role. Can you talk about that a little bit? That transition and, and where that sort of like uh, intersects? Yeah, absolutely. I think the the discipline that I've been focusing on in the last many years, product management, really has opened my eyes up to that kind of evolution in the space of design and everything around it. Um, and the reason I say that is because before kind of getting introduced to the to the whole design world at DirecTV, I came at it at a very much business, um, with a very much business inclined mindset. My my uh, undergraduate degree was in business, so when I was thinking about approaching my job, approaching my job functions, and how to bring value to the company, it was all about meeting business objectives. Um, my time at Directv really kind of shifted and, and made me think about it in a different way. And product management now really lets me kind of fit, sit in the middle and 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 find a connecting point between these two worlds. Is, from a design standpoint, you're really focused on thinking about what is the, the value you can bring to the user? What, how can you solve the user's problem? So over the many, many years from DirecTV to Viacom to now MLS, it's been a, a fun ride learning to kind of balance those two, two sides of the conversation, thinking about how we can both meet our business goals and business needs at the same time as meeting our fan objectives or our user needs and, and finding some synergy, synergy and overlap between those two worlds. Very cool, man. Very cool. So you you mentioned going from waterfall, sort of the waterfall uh, develop or design development process at Directv into agile, and th- there are a lot of I'm familiar with that, but there's a lot of people that listen to this that aren't. Uh, maybe they're doing more graphic design work or sort of social media design. So can you just kind of explain that a little bit, just so they can can put a a finger on what that is? Yeah. So it's. Uh, really describing a process of how you execute projects or, or development work. And uh, when, I, when I say waterfall, this is the process of doing everything sequentially. So you go through a requirement gathering and requirement writing phase. Then once you're completed and wrap that up, you go into a design phase. Once you wrap that up, then you go into development phase. So everything's happening one after the other, a little bit in silos, and there's not a lot of opportunity to interact between the various aspects of a project as it, as it naturally evolves. Um, in an agile world or agile process, things are happening um, in a much more collaborative way, allowing you to do um, all those different aspects in a much more nimble way so that instead of um, designers working in a silo, coming up with a beautiful experience or a beautiful design, throwing it over the fence to a developer who then says, oh, I'm sorry, we can actually technically execute on that and then going back to the drawing board and starting over. You're working in a, in a collaborative way from the start, working in smaller chunks of work so that you can um, constantly iterate and constantly improve the process. And, and the hope and the idea is really to try to rap- more rapidly get quality work out the door in collaboration with the designers and the product managers and the developers. Right, and and testing is a big part of of Correct. agile development too, as well, right? Where you're there's essentially sections on a site or or product, and you're making yep. small iterations and testing them over and over, seeing what works. Yep, it's all about the feedback loop. So, from a waterfall standpoint, you usually don't get that feedback loop until your your product, or your feature, or whatever has gone live to the public, um, which could be months to a year after the initial idea was actually uh, conceived. In agile, you're really trying to trying to uh, lower that that timeline, so you're constantly getting that feedback loop. So the the hope is that you can come come to those insights and the, those learnings during the design and development phase, um, and if not, then you're at least putting out new code and new features uh, in an every two weeks or three week sprint cycle, so you can at least get it from a production standpoint much sooner than a six week release cycle or a one year release cycle. Uh, it's it's an interesting uh, process to me. Just coming from, I, I traditionally came from print design, and then moved into the web probably four years ago more heavily. I mean, I, in the past, I designed websites that you know maybe do like one a year or whatever. But this agile mentality was it tough to tough to transition into that? Because I think a lot of times us designers want to sort of own something from front to back and see this finished product, and now you've got like these smaller pieces. 
Yeah, I mean, it has its pros and cons, um, but overall, I, I think it think it, that it's the the right way to approach it. Um, it's it's definitely good in that you are working alongside um, all of the various disciplines that are ultimately coming together to build a product or an experience so that you um, understand any roadblocks or challenges much earlier in the process. You're not wasting cycles and wasting effort on, on a design concept or something that ultimately then the technical team comes to you and says, that's just not technically feasible. Um, so from that standpoint, it's definitely better. But at the same time, from a design standpoint, it is a little bit more challenging because you are approaching the project in a much more um, bite-sized way. So you're chunking out the project. So if you're really trying to come up with that holistic, comprehensive view or design language or something like that, it becomes a little bit more challenging to think about that larger picture while at the same time outputting smaller chunks of work. Um, but overall, from an efficiency standpoint, I think it makes a lot of sense for, for a digital business to, to operate in this way just to get things in front of fans sooner so you can really get that feedback as, as early as possible as well. Yeah, definitely, and I think it, it's it's essentially that user first mentality. It's it's good for the user, but it's probably not good for say your your portfolio. Correct. <laughs> you, yeah, which is why I think why so many designers write these days. And I definitely want to get into that with you guys as well uh, with your your labs blog. But before we do that, um, you obviously you transitioned from Viacom and joined MLS as the uh, first VP of digital products. And your your first one of your first initiatives was the redesign of MLSsoccer.com, which Included a lot of new fan-facing features, but also an entire new infrastructure. I've I've read on your blog, which obviously I mentioned we want to get into. You've described your main focus points being design, specifically responsive, flexibility to give clubs more control, and performance. Can you talk a little bit about that project and maybe what you learned about your fan base through working on it, and then maybe how it's been received, uh, just as a general case study for your internal group. Yeah, so that was an interesting project. So a lot of the, the work on that project was actually started before I joined MLS. Um, and the team prior to me joining had done a, a tremendous amount of work trying to understand the, the user needs and challenges they were facing with our old website and how we would want to elevate that into, into, the, new, into the new world. Um, but since we've launched, it's been, been, been very positive. So... We had the initial reaction when we flipped the switch and, and rolled out the new responsive layouts and, and design and um, overall experience where a lot of people are, are um, reluctant to embrace change at first. And we had to kind of weather the storm and explain why we made some of the decisions we made and how we were thinking of, of improving the experience going forward. Um, but after the initial kind of blip, we, we let our fans really settle in and get used to the, to the new experience and the new way of navigating the site and all those things. And um, since then, the, the overall reaction and response has been very positive. Everything we've been doing since then to add new features and capabilities to the site has, 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 been, um, has been very, very good so far from both a, a quantitative and qualitative standpoint and all the research we've been doing. Um, but going back to the, the various aspects of what we were trying to achieve when we started that project, one was very clear. We needed to create a much better mobile experience for our fans. Um, this was a trend that had been happening for many, many years actually already in, in the digital space. And I honestly feel like MLS was a little bit behind at, at the time when they finally executed it. But we needed to have a website that performed really well and was a beautiful experience to interact with from your mobile phones. Um, just like any other, uh, any other digital publisher in this day, we see more and more of our traffic coming from mobile devices, and that's even more the case with our audience. The MLS audience is the, the youngest audience out of any of the North American sports leagues, and they are very digital savvy. So we just knew that they were consuming our content from mobile um, phones, from iPads, and we just wanted to give them a better experience. So that was the first kind of challenge. We needed to figure out a way to create an experience that really worked beautifully on, on those devices. Um, so we, we went the responsive route, spent a lot of time thinking about how to lay out our new templates, lay out all the interactions and features and, and types of content, because it's very complicated in the sports world when you're not dealing with just typo typography and, and, and text and videos and images. We were also thinking about data points and stats and how to lay those things out. And um, all those things had to come together to, to work across the board, across many breakpoints. Um, so I think we did a good job there. 
And then from uh, a performance standpoint, that was kind of our, our, our next big challenge. We really wanted to improve the, the performance and scalability of our underlying technology um, because just the, just the place where the league was and where it was on its life cycle was becoming much more mature and our, our fan, um, our audience size was growing significantly year over year. And we wanted to make sure that our, our backend infrastructure would be able to support that and, and deal with the highly volatile traffic patterns we'd see from a game night versus a non-game night. So um, as part of that, we shifted our entire backend strategy, um, moved it from physical server space in our office to, to the cloud. We moved it all into AWS. Um, and it really gave us a number of benefits, but naming like what I was just saying, let us more seamlessly and more in a much more automated way handle the peaks and valleys you see with, with user traffic, depending on what was happening during the season or, or game nights. Now, did you guys, did you do this whole thing in-house or was there an agency involved in some of that? Yeah, so um, it was a combination. We did a lot of it in-house, and we also worked with outside agencies for design um, design help. And from a development standpoint, in the Drupal space specifically, we had an agency um, fill, in, fill in some gaps we had there as well. Their phase two uh, is the name of the company. They're they're great in in the Drupal space. We've been working with them and with them for a number of years, and they they really helped us out with with uh, the entire project. So what I, I came from a, a Drupal shop. That was the last job that I worked at as a creative director of a, a digital agency. So what was the decision? Were you involved in any of that to make the decision to use Drupal, or like for, just from a purely CMS perspective? I'm curious why that choice. Yeah, the decision to go with Drupal actually predates me and my time here at MLS. But since I've joined, I've been asking similar questions of why are we in Drupal? Should we stay in Drupal? Um, there's a big shift, hap- not shift, there's an evolution happening in content management systems and their capabilities and, and just the way they're constructed now that I wanted to really at least explore and, and evaluate again before saying, hey, we are, we are betting on Drupal and that's going to be our system for the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately, it came down to um, a couple of different things. So one, Drupal is a very powerful platform, but at the same time just gives us extreme flexibility to do all the various business use cases that we have, whether it's just serving um, your traditional kind of content or integrating stats or creating live experiences. Drupal was powerful enough to let us adapt and customize it to our needs. Um, and then at the same time, MLS is in a very unique position um, from, a, from a sports league standpoint where because we have this single entity system, we are actually building technologies that we build centrally and then our, our, our clubs use those to drive their digital initiatives as well. So the Drupal system that my team has built and manages is actually the same thing that uses, that all of the 20 clubs use to power their websites. And we're trying to um, do that along all of our kind of technology uh, technology areas is to create it centralized so that anybody can can then use it downstream of us from the club standpoint. But Drupal was really um, the enabler of that as well. Yeah, I mean that's cool. It's almost the MLB interactive model essentially, where the clubs are using the tools that you build exactly uh, at the, at the top. Um, so, Samir, actually, I discovered you uh, through the MLS Digital Labs blog on Medium. I'm, I can't remember how I came across it, um, but it's essentially your your group's blog about your processes, innovations, and people. And, and honestly, I love the fact that you and your group are blogging about technology and design. It, it kind of feels startup-y, which I'm a fan of. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you you guys basically rebranded as a digital product team. I was reading that post and there's there's a lot of folks that listen to this podcast that work in-house for teams or leagues and I personally have always encouraged writing to them. Yep. Uh, also because, you know, sometimes you just can't, like we were talking about earlier, either the work is not public because it's under NDA or there's just some strategic things that you've done that you can't really just put into a visual portfolio. Uh, so, so I'm curious just for for myself and then also for them, how have you been able to use that particular blog as a way to sort of prove your own value to your organization as opposed to just being maybe like an in-house Kinkos? Uh, right. You know, how's it affected your own team and kind of helped communicate what you guys do both internally and externally? Yeah, so we started the blog um, towards the end of 2015. And honestly, I wish we were actually contributing more to it. And it's always a wish of mine to be able to, to spend more time writing and creating posts for the blog. 
Um, but it's again just a balancing act against all other other uh, initiatives that we've got on our plates. But it's been uh, it's been a great tool. So for me, when I started it, I really wanted the team to be able to expose the rest of MLS and and the clubs to just the work that we were doing, because. I felt like when I joined the company, we were battling this um, this concept of us being just a very behind-the-scenes, back-end organization that was creating um, underlying technologies that everybody else would use, but there wasn't as much of the front-end, fan-facing experience that people understood that we were doing. So um, that was kind of the impetus of it, just trying to get our name out within both MLS organization and the clubs. And then beyond that, um, we were also going through this interesting transition point with the, with the product team where we were hiring a number of new people, really reinvigorating the team and our, our, our charter and our mission. And I wanted to make sure that that also got documented so that when we were hiring new people and they came on board, they really understood kind of what we were, what we, what we embraced, what we, what we were standing for. And it also also became it also became a, a great kind of recruiting tool. So so anyone who is looking for um, jobs within product management, engineering, design, became almost a reference point for them to see kind of what we were thinking and what we were working on, and help them understand the type of work we were doing within MLS. Yeah, definitely. I, I think it's a great idea to a great way to expose your team. I mean, like, like I said, I I wasn't even aware that there was a digital products team or or an MLS digital labs until I discovered that. And when I saw it, I was like, oh, dude, this is this is awesome. Got to learn more about this. Um, so y- you, we obviously talked about our age. We're close to the same age, thirty three, and and we're both older millennials. And there's kind of. <laughs> Kind of been this running joke that soccer has been the sport of the future in America since yeah. 1972. Uh, but what's interesting though is I think with our our generation, uh, the global economy, and just millennials being more cultured and connected with worldly news, peers across the world, that soccer as a sport seems to be experiencing exponential growth. And I actually remember the launch of Major League Soccer being being 33, which which is a uh, Kind of makes me feel a little old, even though I don't think that we necessarily are that old. Um, but I think for fan bases of my age and younger, you guys have really, and even stayed on record uh, earlier in this podcast, actually, that MLS has the youngest fan base in comparison to other major sports leagues in the U.S. and Canada. And I think just from my own research and reading that percentage-wise, in comparison to other sports, the growth for you guys has just been staggering. So it seems like that this... Uh, Millennial strategy is working well. You guys are really targeting millennials almost unapologetically. So I'm curious how design technology and sort of the digital social media savvy of millennials is is playing into some of the growth strategies. And do you think that we're kind of starting to see soccer get over the hump, so to speak, as as a prime U.S. sport? Yeah, I definitely think so. Um, looking at it at a more macro level to start, if you just look at where the league is today and where we're going in the next couple of years, it really is a pretty impressive story. So we, um, in the current season, 2016, we'll have, we have currently 20 teams competing within the league. And but in the future years, we're growing really quickly. We're um, expanding to a number of markets and cities throughout the U.S. So um, at the end of 2017, we will have 22 teams. We're adding a team in Atlanta and a team in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And um, our commissioner, Don, has, has talked at length about all the various other expansion efforts we're doing across America and Canada. And um, he stated that in the next uh, handful of years, we were hoping to get up to as high as maybe even 28 teams. So I think that really does speak to just the general interest and the gen- general um, uh, consumption patterns that we're seeing with soccer in general across across the country. It's on the rise for sure. I think the World Cup every four years gives us that boost, but even since the World Cup from the men's standpoint in 2014, we saw a sustained um, lift coming after that. And last year with the women's team doing so well, I think the the general audience is really embracing, embracing the sport and, and really taking it on at a, at a completely different level than whatever I've experienced before that. Yeah, man. I, I just just to add to that, I just have to say too, like even in where I'm at in Lexington, Kentucky, during during the World Cup, there there was a there's just a feeling, man. There's a cultural feeling that I, I've never seen before with the game of soccer in the U.S. You know, the bars were packed in a small market like where I live. So that's that's a huge plus. Yeah, and that's and what you touched on right there is exactly kind of what we're embracing as well. It's 
the bars are packed. It's the cultural aspect of what it feels like to be a soccer supporter that I think we're really trying to embrace and foster in America. Because it is a very unique experience. If you go to a soccer match and go to a soccer-specific stadium and, and watch the New York Red Bulls or, or someone like them playing, it is a very different experience than going to a football game or a baseball game. Um, going to MLS that match, the cultural, cultural aspect is just completely different. You've got the supporters groups, you've got chanting, you've got smoke flares when a goal is scored. So it's, it's a very interesting and fun environment that I think more and, pe- more, and more and people are getting clued in on it and really feeling like they want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. Now, how much of your job would you say is geared towards the fan experience versus uh, is any of it geared towards the experience of actual technology or analytics that coaches and teams are using? Right. So um, most of my responsibilities currently are, are focused on the fan experience. So we're not building um, applications or, or tech solutions for our coaches or players to, to, to work or use to improve their processes or games. It's enti- my, my focus is entirely on the fan and making sure that they are able to consume soccer content and um, engage with us in various channels. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then the only, essentially, as we discussed earlier, what you're building for that teams would be using specifically would be the actual Drupal platform, uh, correct? CMS and stuff. Exactly. So, so there's one thing. I mean, I mentioned startups earlier, and I'm a big fan of startups. I heavily follow the Silicon Valley and all the things that are happening out there. And then also just the I saw even on your Twitter feed that you bought the book Sprint. So just that whole world of design becoming a valuable tool, uh, yep. asset to organizations. Um, and another thing that startups tend to do a lot of times are these things called hackathons. It's a big part of the startup culture. Uh, creative and technology-based talent, just for listeners that aren't familiar, will essentially come together over a short period of time, be it like a weekend or even 24 hours or whatever, and just kind of come up with ideas and try to solve problems as fast as possible. Uh, we've seen a few teams host hackathons in professional sports. I think there was one in the NBA. The Sacramento Kings, I believe, held one. Yeah. But, to, but to my knowledge, you guys are the first league to host one. Uh, you have one that you've branded as Tri Day, and and essentially it's a one day working hours hackathon uh, where you guys get away and and use technology to try to innovate the fan experience. So can you just give us some insight into maybe where the idea of that hackathon came from? Uh, you know how it came to be, and just what the results were from it. Sure. Yeah. So, Tridays um, really started out of the the thinking that we have so many ideas being generated in my organization throughout MLS that we needed to figure out a way to let those ideas come to life without interfering with our existing core initiatives or projects that we had to we knew we had to deliver in the next couple of weeks or next couple of months. Um, so we were just trying to figure out a a platform to let. Um, the folks from my team to start, just get out of the workspace, get out of the work mode, let them free flow and think about any idea that laddered up to a challenge that we would give them, a business challenge we would give them or a user challenge that we would give them, but let them try to, to just come up with a new idea and execute it in a very short time frame with the hope that coming out of that day, we'd have a better understanding of the challenges involved with trying to actually execute that idea or have refined that idea to take it to a future project phase to actually execute and deliver to our fans. Um, that was kind of the more, the, the, the tactical reasoning behind it. But beyond that, my, my hope for Tridays is to really grow it with an MLS organization. So right now it is entirely just focused on the product team and my team coming together and um, doing these experiences out of the office and out of the traditional mindset. But the hope is that we can start to bring more and more folks from around the MLS organization into this space and into this mindset. Because like I was saying before, I think design thinking and design approach is, uh, is a way that, uh, is, is a method that could apply to many different areas of our business. And I just want to get them exposed to that, that mentality and that way of working um, so that we could try to create the same sort of um, idea generation and, and synergies across the org. Um, eventually, too, it also helps with just collaboration across the group. Right. Uh, we've got so many different departments within MLS that we don't necessarily work with them day to day. And oftentimes you find that when you bring these very different mindsets and departments together with a common challenge, you will find very different and unique ways to solve that problem. Uh, and that's what we're hoping for. We want to bring that diversity into play and try to come up with the best solution to a, to a problem through that, through that diversity. 
That's awesome, man. And I think what's cool about these types of things is that, as you mentioned, everyone has ideas. You don't have to be a designer. You don't have to be a developer. Everyone has ideas. Sometimes maybe they're dumb ideas, <laughs> but um, you know, it, it really gives people an opportunity to share. And and you know, sometimes there are things that people think of that maybe we're too close to the product as creative yep. people, where someone that's not a creative or a designer or technology savvy person will look at something being a user and you can capture some some things from them and, and help create those. Did you see that uh, Manchester City did a hackathon? I don't know if you saw that or not. I did, I saw that. And that's actually something that I hope we can ultimately achieve as well. So right, like I was saying, right now we're doing this internally within my team. I want to expand it to MLS, but I'm hoping that at some point down the line we can actually open this up to our fans as well. Because That would be awesome, man. Exactly. That was actually my next thing. I was Because like, the fact that they opened up to their fans was just was huge. Yeah, yeah, we get so much feedback from our fans about all these different different uh, features or ideas that they have to to help them engage with soccer and MLS specifically. That I just I, I we need to work on just exposing our data and our content in ways that they can then play around with it. But that is absolutely my ultimate goal for this right. as well. Very cool. Well, I think sometimes. Major League Soccer can tend to get overlooked in the U.S. in terms of innovation, and honestly, mostly just because that's the, the reality is it's the scale of the sport in comparison to say the NFL, the NBA, as we kind of touched on. But you know, as you mentioned in your tri days, you guys are actually quite innovative and design and user focused and experimental. Um, recently, you've been experimenting with virtual reality and holograms. I, I read an article. With, I think it was with an agency or something that you guys were doing some stuff with them. What types of things can we expect in regards to those types of mediums in the future from the MLS in regards to the fan experience? Sure, yeah, we've been playing around with a lot of things and and my hope is really just to keep a pulse on those items, whether it's virtual reality, augmented reality, chatbots, whatever it is. I want to just be in tune with what's happening in that space. And um, most of the time, we're not necessarily working towards a fan-facing experience. Mm-hmm. It's more about just prototyping and experimenting in the space so we learn about um, how it is to interact in that medium. Uh, but more specifically, so for me, I... I straddle this line, like I was saying before, as a complete sports fan and then also trying to build solutions for sports fans of soccer. Um, For me, I think augmented reality is probably, um, from a sports consumer standpoint, a more closer fit for something that we'd want to deliver to our fans in the future. Mm -hmm. Because when I think about sports, it's a very social experience and you really want to interact with your surroundings and, and the people around you when you're consuming a sport. And augmented reality lets you do that because it's layering over your existing environment um, as opposed to virtual reality, which I think is also very interesting. And if you're um, creating and producing really, really great content from a VR perspective, I think that's also valuable. But just from a match day experience standpoint, I think augmented reality is probably the way that I would want to try to experiment more in in, in, the, in the coming year. Yeah, and I could totally see that because if you think about... Uh, I mean, augmented reality, like you're saying, it's more of a social experience and virtual reality is, even though you might be in the same room physically with people, once you put on those devices, you are somewhere else. (laughs) You're not really interacting with the person that's right next to you. Exactly. And and I think also, you know, what's what's kind of intriguing is there was a lot of hate when Pokemon Go came out, uh, especially from, it seemed like from the sports vertical, uh, people that were calling it cheesy and that it was a fad and all these things. But I think what people failed to really look at is that, hey, there are people going to the, uh, uh, MLB games and line and and meeting each other because they're searching for Pokemon. So if you could find if you could take just the underlying technology and use it in a in a sports context, I mean it's it's going to be a huge. I think that's my opinion at least. I agree. No, I think there's many many use cases. Whether it's uh, sitting on your couch at home watching the game on TV with some sort of augmented reality lens, letting you see stats or other applications of data um, alongside the TV broadcast. That's one use case. If you're in the actual stadium watching the game live, walking around the stadium and being able to consume various AR experiences throughout that, I think there's just so many different avenues you could go down with that space. And it's a per- I think it's a perfect fit for, for sports in the future. Yeah, totally. Actually, I had a I had a gentleman on uh, in one of the early episodes of Makers of Sport who is a he works in augmented reality at ESPN, and and I sort of had this idea where at, at what point are we going to be watching our TVs? And you know, you kind of see these uh, 
just the tail of the tape type thing. Like if you think about a UFC fight uh, and, and like, oh, this is how tall this person is, this athlete is or whatever. At what point, is, how long is it going to be before we start actually seeing a physical you know, hologram or whatever in our living room where we can now actually stand up next to the athlete and compare ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, it's, it's, it's so interesting to think about how that interaction works and, and the direction of where this is all going. I will say though, I do, I mean, I think it's still multiple years away um, you you reference an article from Pop, an agency that we've worked with based out of Seattle. We worked with them on a Hololens experience, and it was really fun going through that entire that through that entire concepting phase and building out a prototype for it. But just from a physical device standpoint, we are nowhere near where it needs to be to create a really simple, seamless experience for. Mm-hmm. And it's still it's still bulky. It's still just something that feels like a barrier between you and what you're trying to consume. So as that barrier goes down, I think this becomes more attractive. But it's still interesting to play around with until that happens. Yeah. Now, does uh, do things like Snapchat and Instagram video fall into your wheelhouse, or is that more for the social team? Yeah. So we do have a dedicated social team that's that's focused on that, and we do try to figure out ways where that can intersect with our owned and operated digital products, whether it's our app or website, but there is a separate team specifically creating content and strategy for our social platforms. So is there, um, there's a, is there a creative director at the MLS? There is not a creative director within the digital world. There is a content head who is thinking about how we want to deliver content to the variety of channels we're distributing content to. And it's becoming a much more complex world, as you know, just year over year thinking about how we need to create a specific story for our website versus a Snapchat story or a Twitter live story or whatever it is. Um, the permutations are just growing significantly every year. And there is a VP of content who is charged with figuring out just kind of that distribution strategy and how to execute across those platforms. So as, as far as things like, uh, like geotags or geofilters and things like that with Snapchat, is that something that you guys are experimenting with? Uh, or would that be something that, that maybe they're doing and coming to you for ideas on? Yeah, right now they are experimenting with it themselves in a, um, in a local basis from market to market. I think we will start playing around with that more as we make our own MLS League app experience um, a more robust platform. So our mobile app right now serves kind of the basic functionality of content, videos, highlights, live streams, et cetera. We are starting to think more about locally based experiences from the stadium to um, everything around that. So I think that comes into play then. Right, right. Well, just kind of shifting past here, you did mention the mobile app. I think one thing, and we actually kind of touched on this just a little as far as just culturally, the culture of soccer. But one thing that I honestly have always believed about soccer is that it's always had a history of being aesthetically pleasing. I mean, if you think about the kits, the boots, uh, old club crests to match day programs, I've actually got this uh, this book here in front of me that a friend of mine got uh, this is completely off topic, but he, it's it's just match day football programs, uh, post war to premiership, and it's literally just illustrations of these old school programs. Interesting. Um, but uh, but anyway, so so what I wanted to get at with this this particular thing now coming <laughs> coming back, my mind tends to wonder. Um, it's it seems to be a sport that is appealing to designers and creative types just because of the culture and the visual history. I mean, if you think about design as like a culturally sensitive position. People just paying attention to designers are our culture creators, I guess. I would consider just in the in the last few years, especially just looking at your work, that the MLS is a design driven league. I mean, the app looks great, the site looks great, the photography and social media imagery look great, and even the the new brand identity system looks great. So I'm curious how you and others uh, in your group are able to kind of push a design driven environment with. Just say executives that, like in most sports, may not be as design savvy or or respect that particular art form. Sure. Yeah. We you you mentioned the MLS rebrand that happened going into the 2015 season. Mm-hmm. And I think that really was a great starting point for for everything downstream of that. Um, and 2015 was when I joined, so I actually was able to come in at a time where that. Uh, that had already been starting to take hold within the organization. But the MLS rebrand, I thought, was very strong. And you think about all the various elements and components of it, um, 
it really helped us create a design language that was flexible, that could work across so many different mediums, whether it was print or digital or um, physical merchandise. I think the, the design language created there was, was, was great. Now what I'm trying to do is establish a digital product language that can marry up into that, which to be honest, to this point has been a little bit of a challenge just because of the nature of my group and the way we're staffed right now. We've got some disparate uh, teams working on the, the various platforms. So just as a, as a natural output of that, you'll get discrepancies happening from our website to our mobile apps to our connected TV devices. But ultimately, I think we've got a strong foundation in the MLS brand. We've put in a lot of, lot of effort to really build that up and, and create a, a strong brand that I would want to absolutely execute across our digital properties as well. So you mentioned like a digital language. Are you kind of referring to maybe like a living style guide or something? Yeah, absolutely. But more specific to the 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 new MLS logo that was that uh, was put out last year. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I was joining MLS, I took a, a look at the logo and comparing it to the the previous logo logo where you had the the very um, uh, specific soccer cleat and soccer ball, making it very explicit what the league right. stood for. Mm-hmm. We moved away from that and moved to the shield, which is a very spa- soccer specific um, visual element. But thinking beyond that, you look at the way they've just laid out that shield and creating that white space in the bottom right half of that shield basically just opened up this, this infinite door of possibilities of what we could do with that space, where our, uh, our sponsorship partners could do with that space, where the teams, our clubs could create experiences within that space. It just allowed us to do a lot more iterations um, but while maintaining that overall MLS brand. So that's that's more of the language that I'm thinking about. Yeah. As we trickle that down into the digital world, I, I do want to create a living, breathing digital style guide that becomes this kind of component library that we could um, use throughout all of our platforms, but mm-hmm. we're not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, I definitely think that uh, it just kind of going back to the logo, if you look at the one from the past, it was very it was very reminiscent stylistically of '90s sports logos like the, the 90s NBA and that type of thing. And I think a lot of that stuff really sort of uh, is dependent on technology. You know, around that time, Photoshop and Illustrator were kind of coming to their own. I think people were experimenting with with things that that those softwares did. And now I, I, I love the fact that we've kind of went back to this more clean and simple look with brand identity, but also the fact that now because of all these different mediums and moving, you know, like a logo no longer is a static thing. It's something that needs to live and breathe in all these different mediums. And and the fact, the, conceptually, what you guys did with that, um, I, I enjoy that. And I think it provides you, like you're saying, with a lot of flexibility moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually interesting because you look at what the Premier League did going into this season with their brand design and I see a lot of similar similarities in kind of their their approach and what they were trying to accomplish, and I think they did a really good job doing that as well. Um, and the output of their 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 work was a similar kind of concept where you've got a really flexible design system with the new Premier League logo that can work in just so many different instances. So I think you're right. A lot of the the sports leagues across America and the globe are, are moving more and more in that direction. Yeah, I think you know the the Premier League one is interesting for me because I think that just color wise it's a little bit trendy for me i just don't see like how in in 5 to 10 years that's cuz th- those those bright pink and uh, sort of lime green colors that's just something that's hot right now it feels like yeah no yeah, it's it is interesting that is the one thing um i i think about as well as just they when you think about the premier league they've got a much longer history than obviously the mls and a lot of um maturity in their brand and their in their league and Sometimes I do wonder if they they lost a little bit of that with their with their visual rebrand. Mm-hmm. But from a pure just design aesthetic standpoint and creating a design language, I think they've succeeded in giving their their designers and their their partners a toolkit that they can build off of. Well, and I mean, I guess if you really look at it in just like a Twitter stream where a lot of this stuff is going to be viewed, it, it does stand out in comparison to any other any other sports brand. So there's always that. Hey, listen, Samir, and and kind of wrapping up here. There's, I've mentioned this before, but there's a lot of folks working in house uh, and that listen to this podcast. And, you know, some of them really struggle, as we were mentioning with executives trying to get 
innovative ideas pushed through and that type of thing. And I think a lot of times, either through this podcast or through other methods, they tend to hear these sort of buzzwords like VR, AR, and just other new technologies. So I'm curious, just from your experience, if you could just kind of shed some light and give some advice to them on where some good places for them to maybe just start looking to research that stuff and possibly help them implement it into their own fan experiences. Yeah, I've become, um, in the last year, you mentioned our blog earlier, um, labs.mlsoccer.com. It's on, a, it's on Medium. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I've been consuming more and more content on Medium um, every, every week. Yeah. And the reason for that is just because I think it's a great platform just to get ideas on various topics, whether it's design, technology, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so just from an idea generation standpoint and reading about other individuals or organizations or companies going through that process of trying to figure out how to, to shift and evolve. I think Medium is a great conduit for that. Um, but to me, I think the, the best way to accomplish that was honestly, I just started tinkering with our own processes and embracing that iterative approach and knowing that nothing is finite and complete and uh, everything that we do is always in the hope of iterating and moving it forward in an incremental way. As, once you start experimenting with everything that you, you do from a process standpoint to a documentation standpoint with the concept of, hey, let's just figure out how to make this a little bit better, um, eventually it adds up to being a, a very progressive mindset or approach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know if, if did you, are you familiar with Bill Simmons? Yeah, absolutely. And they, I mean, they launched their entire website on Medium, The Ringer, yeah. <laughs> which yep. I thought was pretty crazy. It but is. yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Medium as well. So I do have one more question, and this one's totally selfish. Uh, I, we were talking early. I can't. I don't think we were recording when we talked about this, but you, I mentioned that I'm a avid soccer fan, but also just a coach, coaching my two sons. Um, and now I'm coaching in U6 and U8. So I'm curious as a coach that's maybe looking to grow the game with my own kids, and this isn't necessarily in, I guess, your digital product wheelhouse, but just working with the MLS uh, in general, is there, are there any resources or anything out there for coaches like myself that are really wanting to kind of help grow the game that are outside of, say, what U.S. soccer already does? Like, is the MLS doing anything specific for, for that type of mentality or that type of initiative? Sure, Yeah. Um, not totally sure what's happening in, in your local market, but in general, Major League Soccer really is trying to, trying to forge a very strong relationship with the communities that it's part of. Mm-hmm. So you look at our MLS teams, something that has happened in the last many years is they're all developing academies that are within their own communities. And from a competition and playing standpoint, um, the top tier team is actually being incentivized to develop talent as young as under 12, under under 16, et cetera, and get them going through their own ranks. Because if they actually do that, they actually can then have first right to sign them to their top tier league. Right, yeah. But alongside that, they're um, just giving all sorts of, of, of opportunities and um, help to the communities to build that soccer culture. And not just the soccer culture, but just all sorts of athletics and activity culture within the local communities that the, the, the team is part of. Right. You know, I wonder if... Uh we've seen sort of these college football satellite camps. It could be, it'd be interesting to see if, if any of these MLS teams end up branching out and doing like, you know, these quote unquote satellite organizations that are out, even outside their market. You know, you look at, just look at the, some of the Southeast states that don't yeah. have MLS teams. Yeah. I mean, obviously you guys, Atlanta now is, is a market for you guys, which funny enough, that would have been the team that I would have supported <laughs> if I wasn't always already supporting the Red Bulls because my, my in-laws are from Atlanta, but yeah. Oh, well, I guess a little, little, no, you, gotta get, you, should get that, you should get on the Atlanta bandwagon. It has been an amazing, amazing, um, demand from the, that, that fan audience over there. They're, um, so eager to get a team and just the season ticket sales, even before they've started, have just been amazing to me to see because I think they've already blown all the records out of the water for season tickets for subscribers for any club already in MLS. That's awesome, man. That's really good to hear. Well, listen, uh, Samir, why don't you just give listeners, uh, where, where can people reach out to support you and your team's work online, whether that's just through, just through following you or the blog or any or anything like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me personally on Twitter at Samir Golay. Um, but also please check out our team's blog, our product team's blog at MLS. You can find us on Medium at labs.mlssoccer.com. And then you can all also see all of our work through our MLS channels, whether it's mlssoccer.com, our mobile apps, our Snapchat, Facebook channels. We all work and contribute to that. So anything you can do to, to check us out on there would also be great. Very cool. Well, man, really appreciate you taking the time out of your, your busy schedule to come aboard and, uh, and hope, to, hope to definitely stay in touch. All right. Thank you. Great chatting yeah. with you. My next guests are going to be the Costacos brothers. If you're a child of the 80s or 90s, you probably remember going to Walmart or even your local sports store and seeing these over-the-top posters of athletes with Corvettes, fire, animals, or just other crazy things in the background. The Costacos brothers pretty much revolutionized the sports poster as we know it, even today. It, it really meant something, honestly, to have a a shoot with the Costacos brothers if you were an athlete, and they've got some great, great stories. Anyhow, with the digital revolution, they've they disappeared for a while, uh, but they're back with a vengeance, and they recently released a, an interesting poster of uh, Russell Wilson, which uh, I can link to. I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, but if you want to learn more about them, check out CostacosBrothers.com or follow them on Twitter, Costacos Brother with no S, and that is C-O-S-T-A-C-O-S, Costacos. Big thanks again to Samir Golay for taking the time to come aboard the podcast during this super busy soccer season. Again, as he mentioned, you can follow him on Twitter at Samir Golay, and that is S-A-M-I-R-G-O-L-E. Or be sure to follow the MLS Digital Labs blog on Medium, which we were discussing, which is at labs.mlssoccer.com. If you're interested in hearing more Makers of Sport episodes, head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to check out previous interviews or listen to the original halftime episodes where I discuss things like business, entrepreneurship, and freelance in the sports industry. As mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, halftime episodes since episode 65 are available to paid community members only. If you do want to support the podcast, you can join the community at makersofsport.com slash community, where you will get future halftime episodes as well as their transcriptions, private Q&As with future former and special guests, monthly Google Hangouts, and an invite to the live chat where we engage just about 24 hours a day in Slack. In addition, you will get an opportunity to take part in a very interesting project that we are launching called the High School Project. It's a pro bono branding project that community members are taking part in for underfunded high school athletic programs around the US. More on that initiative can be found in episode 75, which is called Donating Your Creativity. All community content is recorded and available for you anytime that you join, including those private Q&As. I do have a lot of cool stuff planned this fall with Snapchat takeover. So if you're on Snapchat, be sure to follow Makers of Sport. If you're not, this may be a good time to get initiated as we have community members from sports organizations from around the US that are going to be taking over the account in multiple sports uh, for live behind the scenes other game days, training camps or other things that they, they're working on. It's a great opportunity to see what the folks that create the work for your favorite teams do when they get ready for games, seasons, or, or more. Our first takeover was community member and graphic designer Meg Majera. She took us behind the scenes for Indianapolis Colts training camp. And now that the NFL season is in full effect, we will have a few other NFL creatives that are going to take over the count this season. So watch Twitter and follow on Snapchat for news on that. Now, obviously, those of you that do know Snapchat know that the stories disappear after 24 hours. So the account will be dormant most of the time until a takeover happens, but by following, it will pop up in your stories when it does happen. I do want to reiterate, the podcast is listener-supported and not sponsor-supported. You'll never hear ads on the show or have to hit the 30-second skip button to blaze through sponsors. So if you do get value from the content that's coming from this podcast or the outlets on social media, email newsletters, or other areas, then I ask that you please consider supporting the show by voting with your hard-earned dollars and joining the community. In exchange for that fiscal support, you will receive premium content and just get to interact and network with like-minded creatives in the sports industry who are already there today in Slack. For those of you that 
just can't afford it at this moment or just casual listeners, have no fear. The interview episodes will be free forever. And you can still show your support by leaving reviews, retweeting the show, or sharing the show and any other method and signing up for the email newsletter. The newsletter will get you podcast show notes delivered directly to your inbox. And it also includes Weekend Reads, which is a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content and share the things that I'm reading, things I find interesting, or things that inspire me. In addition, on that newsletter list, you'll be notified in advance of upcoming guests. So by going to makersofsport.com slash email, enter your email address and stay in touch with the happenings of the podcast and its future. To review the show, as mentioned, just take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com slash iTunes. Hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. I do read every single one of these and they definitely mean a lot. If you've gotten value for myself or any of the guests on the show, then please rate the podcast so that others just can discover the show for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept likes or ratings on Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast application you enjoy listening in. I'm at T. Adam Martin on all social media, including Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and pretty much everywhere else on the interwebs. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week. Hey.